Good morning, everybody. Happy Chinese New Year. Happy Chinese New Year for those who celebrate Chinese New Year. And I hope that you had opportunities to share the gospel with your friends and families. Um, we know that evangelism is a very important command by God given to all believers. And it is a sin not to evangelize. I think that most Christians know that we need to share the gospel, but many do not. And there are many reasons for this. And one of the reasons why is because a lot of people don't know what to say, what, to, what is the gospel and how to say it. So if that's you, I have good news. Today's sermon will help you. And even if you are a seasoned evangelist, this sermon can also help you. Because by looking at how Peter preached the gospel, we, it can help us to preach the gospel more accurately. So please turn your Bible to Acts 2, verses 22 to 41. We are continuing our preaching series through the book of Acts. Now before we read this passage, let's remind ourselves of the context. Right? Remember, in Acts 1, Jesus promised the baptism of the Holy Spirit who will empower us to fulfill our mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. And this baptism happened in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit in the tongues of fire came down on the believers. And after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the believers were filled with the Spirit and they started to speaking in tongues or foreign languages. And uh, they were prophesying, proclaiming the mighty works of Christ. And so these Jewish people worshiping in the temple from all over the Roman Empire heard these Jewish Galileans believers uh, proclaiming, prophesying in their own language. And they're like, whoa, what is going on here? Uh, this is amazing. Why am I hearing my own language? They're not even from my country. And so Peter got up to preach the gospel. And he begins by explaining to them that the Holy Spirit that they saw is the fulfillment of God's prophecy through Joel 2, that he will send the Holy Spirit in the last days and that they will prophesy. And the last days is the time of the Messianic uh, period. It is, the first, it is a period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. But that is not the central part of his sermon. The central part of his sermon is our passage because the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. We can only be saved through Christ. And so he starts his sermon by preaching the gospel. Um, <clears throat> let's read our passage in uh, verses 22 to 41. I'm reading from the ESV. Peter says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he will set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he has not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which, of, um, and of that we all witness, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow, what a wonderful, powerful sermon. It saved 3,000 souls. Now, his sermon can be outlined into four points. And we see the four points here is believe in the sovereign death of Jesus, recognize the fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection, and submit to the kingship of Jesus. This is in verses 33 to 36. And repent of your sins. Now, these four points are the essence of the gospel. And when we share the gospel, we must have these four points in order to have a complete gospel message. Now let's look at Peter's first point, the sovereign death of Jesus. This is in verses 22 to 23. After Peter talked about the Holy Spirit, he connected the Spirit to the person of Christ. And he begins his central part of the sermon in verse 23, by reminding the Jews that everybody knows Jesus because he was a man attested by God by doing miracles. Attested means to authenticate, to approve through miracles, that he is a true prophet of God. And Jesus proclaimed to be the Messiah. And the expectation of the Messiah was a central part of the Jewish religion. He's not a peripheral figure. 
He's a central figure in the Jewish religion. Now, according to the Jewish calculation, there are 450 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, about the Messiah. You see, ever since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, God has been on a mission to restore his kingdom on earth. And the central figure who accomplished this mission is the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah just means uh, the anointed one. Uh, that's the Hebrew word, anoint, uh, Messiah. Uh, Christ is the Greek word. They both mean the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, three offices were associated with being anointed, and that is prophet, king, and priest. But for the promised Messiah, the office that is mostly, that most prominently associated with him is the office of king. This is why he is called the son of David, the descendant of David. He is king. And the Jews expected the Messiah to come and conquer their enemies and set up his kingdom on earth. So he was, they were expecting the Messiah to be victorious, not a Messiah who's crucified. To them, a Messiah who's crucified is an insane message. It is totally contrary to what they expect. So to, to overcome this hurdle, Peter emphasized that Jesus' death was not out of God's plan. God sovereignly arranged this. He says in verse 23 that his death was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So even before this happened, God knew it because he prophesied about it. And he didn't just let this happen. He actually made sure that it happened. That's what definite plan means. He planned it out. God is sovereign. The death of Jesus does not prove that God is not sovereign. It proves the opposite, that he is sovereign and he has not lost control of the world. And this tells us that God is sovereign and men are also responsible. They are also responsible. God did not make these people, evil people, to crucify Christ. They did it out of their natural desire. Now many people ask, how does that work? How can God be sovereign and humans be responsible? Now if you have taken a systematic theology class, we have read a book on systematic theology class, you would know theologians call this the concurrence of God. And what it means is that God works through the natural properties of his created beings, like humans, to accomplish, to cause them to act and to accomplish his plan. It's kind of like a human being dangling a piece of meat over a dog and causing that dog to jump. Okay? That human being did not directly make the dog to jump. The dog jumped out of its own desire. But that was the human being's plan. And so is the concurrence of God. When Jesus came, when he preached sin against the religious leaders, they naturally, out of their evil heart, wanted to kill him. They did it out of their natural desire, and concurrently, at the same time, it was God's plan. So God is sovereign, and human beings are responsible. Now, why did God plan the death of Jesus? This passage, this sermon does not tell us. Uh, we know that 
Luke explained this before in his gospel, his first volume. Acts is his, is his second volume. And we know that Luke did not record the full version of Peter's sermon. If you read this whole sermon out loud, it's only less than four minutes. Okay, I'm sure he preached longer than that. And even in verse 40, it says that Peter, with many words, bore witness and continued to exhort them. So Luke only summarized the sermon. He didn't explain it. But for us, when we proclaim the death of Jesus in our gospel message, we must explain to people why he died. And Luke explained this to us already in his gospel. He tells us Jesus must die because he is the final, ultimate Passover lamb who is a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of believers. That is why he died. You see, God is not just loving. He is a righteous God who must judge sins. If he does not judge, he is not a good, just God. So he must die for the sins of believers. So in our gospel presentation, we need to explain his death and why he died. Now let us look at Peter's second point, and that is recognize the fulfillment of Jesus' resurrection in verses 24 to 32. Yes, Jesus' death was God's sovereign plan, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus is a victorious king as prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. Death cannot defeat him. His enemies cannot defeat him. He is a prophesied forever king of Israel and the whole world. So on the third day, he eventually was raised from the dead. And Peter proves this resurrection of Jesus by quoting King David, who prophesies in Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. David lived about 1,000 years before Jesus, so this prophecy was, 1,000, was written 1,000 years ago before Jesus. And in this psalm, David referred to the Messiah as the Holy One, the Holy One. And it seemed like David was, but if you read Psalm 16, it seemed like he was referring to himself, but we know that he was not because Peter says that David died and he was buried and his tomb was there to that day. So this was referring to Messiah. Peter tells us that King David saw the Messiah and he referred uh, to the Messiah in that psalm because the Messiah is a central figure in the Jewish religion. Is a central figure. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is important in our gospel presentation because he is victorious. It's also important that we Talk about the resurrection because it gives us hope and joy. Because Jesus is resurrected, we believers are united with him, and we will be resurrected when Jesus comes. And the resurrection is not just important for our resurrection, but it's actually important point that leads to Peter's third point in his sermon. And this is his climax, and that is submit to the kingship of Jesus. And this is in verses 33 to 36. Jesus has not just ascended to heaven. He has not just resurrected. 
but he's seated in heaven at the right hand of God. He's not seated on earth, but in heaven. And so that means he is the Lord of the universe. He governs all human beings on earth, and he governs all angels in heaven. And Peter quotes the prophecy in Psalm 110 to make his point. And this psalm is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. And it says, uh, this is also written by David, and God spoke through David, and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, it may not be clear to you from the English Bible, but if you look at the original Hebrew, or even in your English text in Psalm 110, it actually says, Yahweh said to my Lord, King, sit at my right hand. Uh, Yahweh is the personal name of God, and it means I am. He told Moses, I am who I am. It indicates God's self-existence. He doesn't depend on anyone or anything for, for his existence. And he does not change. He is I am. And the name of Yahweh appears thousands of times in the Old Testament. But all our English Bibles, except for the Legacy Standard Bible, translates it as Lord or God in all capital letters. Now, why do most major English Bible translations do this? It's because the Jews thought that the name of Yahweh is so holy that they would not pronounce it. The scribes, they were, when they read it, they would not say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. It means Lord, Lord. And so, and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was the most common Bible for the early Christians, they also translate as Koryas, Lord, with the Greek word Koryas. And so our English Bibles follow the Septuagint by using all capital letters, Lord, God, to refer to Yahweh. Amen. Uh, but in the New Testament Greek, it doesn't even use Yahweh. It just uses Koryas. So that's why in the New Testament, we only see Lord, not all capitalized. That only happens in, in the Old Testament. So that's why when we read the New Testament, it's not clear what Lord is referring to. Is it referring to Yahweh or is it referring to a, a human being, a human master? So you have to go to the Old Testament to, to confirm. Now, since we live in Indonesia, I want you to know that the Indonesian Bible uses the word Allah not as the personal name of God, but it means God. It just means God. It just translates the Hebrew word Elohim to mean God, or the Greek word Theos to mean God. Okay, why is that? Because the Arabic Christians and Middle East Christians, they were using that name Allah to refer to God even before Islam existed. Okay? So don't be confused. Allah is not the personal name of our God. That's the personal name of God for Muslims, not for Christians. So do not be confused. We do not worship the same God. 
about to Psalm 110, David is prophesying that in the future, Yahweh will have the Messiah ascend to heaven and be seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And to be seated at the right hand of God means a position of power, authority, honor that is second only to God himself. He is the Lord of the whole universe of heaven or earth. And Peter says that this prophecy in Psalm 110 is fulfilled at that time when Jesus ascended. Peter says in Acts 2.36 that God has fulfilled this prophecy by making Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ means king. He is a king of heaven and earth. He is exalted. Now, when we talk about the exaltation of Christ, we are talking about the exaltation of him in his human nature. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. His divine nature does not die. It does not need to be resurrected. And it does not need to be exalted. It's already exalted. Now, this is referring to his human nature, and the text is clear. It says, Jesus is a man attested by God through miracles. And he's called the descendant of David. He is, in his human nature, he is exalted at the right hand of God. And this is explained very clearly in Hebrews 2, 6-7. He says, as a human being, He's seated at the right hand of God, and now a human being is in charge of even angels. And we believers, we are united with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. And that means when Jesus returns, we will also rule over angels with him. And that is what 1 Corinthians 6 says. And that is an amazing blessing that we have in Christ. Is a powerful message. And the fact that the Jews saw the physical special appearance of the Holy Spirit in the form of tons of fire tells us that Jesus has ascended and been exalted. And so when we present the gospel to people, we must also speak of his exaltation. He is now the king of the universe, and he calls everybody to submit to his kingship. And one day, Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on earth, and everybody who follows him will enter his kingdom and live in paradise forever. And those who rebel against him will suffer outside of his kingdom. And that is part of the gospel message. Now, after Peter finished explaining the gospel, verse 37 says, the listeners, the listeners were cut to the heart. That means their conscience was convicting them of sins. They took part in the killing of Jesus, and they're in big trouble. So they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter's, uh, Peter's response is the fourth point in his sermon and that is repent of your sins. Repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, repentance in the Bible means turn away. Okay? You turn away from sin, you turn toward God. It involves the whole person. It involves your mind. It means if you have a wrong understanding of Jesus, just as the Jews did, they rejected him as Messiah. So they now must turn and accept the truth about the Messiah. And it's not just turning of your minds, but it's turning of your heart. You loved sin before, now you have sorrow towards sin, and you have a genuine desire to please God, to honor Him, to obey Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And repentance also involves our will, the whole person. We don't just say we have repented, but we must demonstrate that our repentance is real. And that is what repentance means. Look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So it involves our emotion. We are sorrowful toward God. We're not sorry just because we're fearful of His judgment. But we are sorry because it dishonors God. It offends Him. Now we want to honor Him. That is true repentance. The focus is not so much about consequence. It is about honoring God. That is true repentance. And when we have that, we have the forgiveness of sin. We have true conversion. Now, some of you may be thinking, this sounds like a work-based religion. We have to work and then be safe. Is that true? No, that is not repentance. Repentance, good deeds from our repentance cannot cancel the penalty of our sins. Just as doing community service is not going to cancel your crimes of murder and treason, you cannot do good deeds to cancel your crimes. Only the death of Jesus as a final, ultimate Passover lamb can cancel our sins. And we receive that forgiveness through our faith in Jesus. It's faith alone that saves us. But repentance demonstrates that our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord is real. It's real. Now think about it. If you have faith, if you confess that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, if it's true, then of course you're going to try, you're going to honor him and obey him. Right? If you don't, that means your confession is false. It is false. You repent, your faith, your repentance is not real. So true repentance is demonstrated through our actions. It's through changing of our mind, our emotion, and our actions. So true conversion happens when there are two things. Faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. If you have faith and repentance, then you have true conversion. But if you just say that you believe in Jesus, but you have no repentance, then your faith is not real. Your conversion is false. You need both faith and repentance to be saved. Now, I know that the word faith is not mentioned in verse 38, but it's mentioned in other parts of the Bible. Because in the Bible, 
When there's repentance, it implies faith. I just hear. And sometimes it just uses the word faith, but it also implies repentance. I look at look at um, Acts sixteen thirty one. It says, believe, right? Have faith in Jesus and you will be safe. So it's implying repentance. But sometimes the Bible mentions both repentance and faith. Like in Acts 20 to 21. Acts 20, 21. Paul says he testified to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So true conversion happens when there's both faith and repentance that demonstrate this faith is real. That is true conversion. And repentance is a lifestyle. It's just like faith. It's not a one and done thing. It's not, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then two minutes later, see you later, Jesus. Bye-bye. I'll just do whatever I want. That is not true faith and repentance. That is not real conversion. So repentance is a lifestyle, just as faith in Jesus is a lifestyle. And we must continue to repent from whatever sins that we have in our lives. And we demonstrate it by our actions, not just our words, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, look at Acts 20, 20, 26 to 20. I love this what it says about the actions that follows repentance. Uh, Paul is saying here that he preached the gospel so that Gentiles, they, shall repent and turn to God, performing deeds in in keeping with the repentance. So repentance involves the whole person, your mind, your heart, and your actions. And when someone is truly repented, that person will automatically be forgiven of their sins and automatically receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, our passage here, verse 38, also mentions water baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And it seems like this is saying that we must be baptized in order to be saved. And that is not the correct reading of the Bible because we know from the Bible it's clear that only faith in Jesus and repentance that demonstrate our faith is real saves us. Uh, we cannot be saved by some kind of ritual like water baptism. There's no magical power in H2O. Uh, Peter is also very clear to us that he says in 1 Peter 3.21, he says, Baptize, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Peter is very clear. Water baptism uh, that removes the dirt from your body does not save you. He's referring to spirit baptism. When we believe the Holy Spirit baptized or immerse us, that's what that word means, literally means, Place us, immerse us into the body of Christ so that we are saved, we are saved from sin. And that's what he's talking about. Our water baptism is a symbolic reflection of the reality that we have been 
saved and immersed into the body of Christ. So we could say that uh, water baptism is just a public declaration, that celebration that somebody has to publicly declare their solidarity and commitment to Jesus and his church. So it's kind of like a form of, bapt- uh, of a, uh, uh, repentance that demonstrates that our, bapt- our commitment is real. So it doesn't save. It doesn't save us, but it is important. So if you're, sa- if you're saved, I encourage you to be baptized. Now we can also compare water baptism to a public wedding ceremony, right? A ceremony is when a couple publicly declare to everybody, hey, we're married, okay? But the ceremony does not make a marriage. What makes a marriage is when the couple goes to the government office and register the marriage. If they don't go to the government office but have a wedding, they're not married in the eyes of the government, right? So it's the same thing. Water baptism does not save us, but it demonstrates that we have publicly declared our commitment to Christ. There's no power in H2O to save us. There's no magical power. Now, uh, Roman Catholic theology teaches that infant baptism actually erases our original sin and actually saves the baby. Uh, This is a serious attack on the gospel, and we must avoid that. The Bible is clear. Only our true faith in Jesus' death that is demonstrated through our repentance saves us. Not H2O. It's the Passover lamb that saves us. So here in verse 38, it tells us when someone truly repents, uh, they will automatically be forgiven of their sins and they will automatically be baptized by the Spirit and receive the Spirit. Uh, There's no command in the Bible for unbelievers to ask for the Holy Spirit. There's only command for unbelievers to believe in Jesus. And when they believe, they will automatically be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And when they are baptized, they are filled with the Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18 commands believers to continually, daily, to be filled with the Spirit. So baptism and the filling of the Spirit are different. Uh, Baptism happens once automatically. Feeling, letting the Holy Spirit control us is a daily process. And we do this by being filled with the Spirit's word and produce the fruit of the Spirit, as Galatians 5.22 tells us. Now, after Peter finished his sermon, 3,000 people came to Christ. What an amazing, powerful sermon. I think that is one of the greatest revival in human history, in church history. One sermon and 3,000 people came to Christ. And God used his powerful message on the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ to accomplish this. And so when we preach, we must also preach about his death, resurrection, exaltation, and repentance. Uh, 
Now, brothers and sisters, God can also use you to be powerful instruments in his hand to save others. If you are faithful to the gospel message. Okay, we may not be like the apostles who through one sermon and saved thousands of people. But God can still use us as his powerful instruments to save those around you. Now think about it. When you share the gospel, do you preach the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ and repentance from sin? If you are not doing it, then you need to change and preach that gospel faithfully. And so that God can use that powerful message to save others. Now, sadly, many churches in Indonesia do not preach the gospel. There are many false gospels in Indonesia. Some preach a false gospel that says, hey, you are a pretty good person. You just need Jesus to give you some good coaching to become a better person. Or they say, hey, you are a pretty good person. You just lack success in life. You're not reaching your full potential. You just need Jesus to give you a boost in life so that you can accomplish your full potential and all your desires in the world. That is a false gospel. Peter and all the apostles never preached such gospel. And this gospel, many call it as therapy gospel. It's a therapy gospel. It's a false gospel that does not save. And it disguises itself as a, a more loving and gentle gospel. But it, there's nothing loving about it because it cannot save sinners. A loving gospel is a gospel that pleads with people to repent of the sins of idolatry and submit to the lordship of Jesus. It's not bargaining with God. Hey, you help me to get what I want and then I will worship you. That is not the gospel. That is not submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Yes, God has many wisdom about life, parenting, leadership. But we must accept him as Lord, not as a life coach. It's Lord submitting to his lordship that saves us. Now, some people preach a therapy gospel. Others preach a prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, believe in Jesus and you will be guaranteed in this life to be rich, healthy, famous, be pain-free in this life. Now, yes, some Christians can be rich and healthy. I see many of you are rich and healthy. But that is not the promise of the gospel. The gospel does not promise prosperity in this lifetime. We will only receive paradise when Jesus returns and when we enter into his kingdom. That is the promise of the gospel. Before Jesus returns, many Christians can suffer, especially if they live in places where there's persecution, just like the days of the apostles. All of them suffer. Uh, if you give them the prosperity gospel, they will laugh at you. 
Okay, they got the opposite. It's a ridiculous gospel because they got the opposite. They got poverty, suffering. They were beaten, killed. The properties were confiscated. You know, the prosperity gospel does not work in such context. It's, it's a false gospel. And Paul said to all his disciples in Acts 14, 22, that they must experience many tribulations, hardships, before they enter the kingdom of God. Apostle Paul, Peter, all the apostles, all the early Christians never preached such false gospel. It does not save. Now, why do people preach these false gospels? Uh, there are many reasons. And I think that some people think the true gospel is too harsh, too difficult for sinners to believe, to accept. So they water down the gospel and they change the gospel. Uh, you know, God has a serious warning to these people. Paul says in Galatians 1.8, Anyone who preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That means, accursed, that means to be damned, to be judged by God and sent to hell. And that is a serious warning that everyone must take heed. We should not partner with anyone who preaches a false gospel. We should only partner with people who preach the true gospel and avoid false gospels and those who proclaim them like COVID-19. We must avoid them. Our job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. It's God's job to save people. That is not our job. Our job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to be witnesses. It's God's job to open the hearts of unbelievers to believe, just like what he did to Lydia in Acts 16, 14. God says he opened her heart, she believed, and she was baptized. So it's his job to save people. Now, I understand that sometimes we wish our loved ones to be saved so bad that we have a temptation to change the gospel, to make it easier. And I can understand that because I have family members and friends who are not Christians. But this is not loving. It's counterproductive. Changing the gospel will not save their souls. Now, instead of changing the gospel, we should pray for them, that God will open their hearts to believe in Jesus. And that's what Paul prayed for in Romans 10. So we should not change the gospel. We should pray for them. And we should not change the gospel, but we should love them so that they can see the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and be attracted to the gospel and believe. That's what Tim, Titus 1.20 says. It says, it, this is a command from God. We should show all good faith so that in everything they, that is these faithful acts, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is saying that made the gospel more attractive through our transformed lives. So that when unbelievers see us, they are attracted to the gospel. So don't change the gospel. Change your life. Be transformed by the Spirit and pray for your loved ones 
and proclaim the gospel faithfully. And that is exactly what the early first Christian group did in Acts 2. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit and transformed. And their transformation attracted people. And more and more people became Christians. Look at Acts 2, 44 to 47. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling the possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were saved. You see, those Christians were transformed. They became generous, and they had favor with all the people, and more and more people became Christians. So don't change the gospel. Change your life and preach the gospel faithfully, and God can use you as his powerful instruments to save others. You know, I often hear many conversion stories of how unbelievers were attracted to believers' life and became Christians. And just a few months ago, my pastor friend in Indonesia told me he just baptized a Muslim guy. And this Muslim guy is from a rich family, a well-known family. But the family is full of strife. All the siblings cannot get along with each other. They fight with each other. They cannot forgive each other. They hate each other. But when he saw Christians who are not even related by blood, forgiving, loving each other, he asked my pastor friend, why, how? And so my pastor told him, we Christians can forgive because we have been forgiven by God of our sins. And then he shared the gospel with him, and he became a believer and was baptized. You see, that is the power of preaching the gospel faithfully, living out the gospel and it transformed life, powered by the Holy Spirit, and praying for people. So don't change the gospel. Change your life. Change your life. And it happened to me also, personally. You know, just a few years ago, there was a Muslim woman in my building, and she saw how I love my daughters and spent time with them, and that really attracted her to our family because she longed to have a relationship with her father. She never had that because her dad had four wives and all he did was yell at the kids and, and spend time outside. And so she was attracted to that lifestyle that we, we have. And so she asked us about our life. And my wife and I, we built a relationship with her. We shared the gospel and she became a Christian. That is the power of the gospel and a transformed life. Now, trust me, I was a really bad person before I became a Christian. If God did not save me, I would be the same as this, this woman's uh, dad. I would not care about my kids. I would just play with, with my friends. So be transformed, change your life, and even simple things as spending your time loving your children can be a powerful witness. So do not change the gospel. Change your life. You know, I wish that we can 
attract people to the gospel by having the special appearance of the Holy Spirit, just like in Acts, come regularly. I mean, I wish that would happen. I mean, we have so many refugees in our church from the Middle East. And wouldn't it be amazing if all the Indonesians stood up, started speaking in tongues, prophesying in Farsi, proclaiming the glory of God in Farsi, in Arabic, or whatever language these refugees come from. And these refugees hear these Indonesians speaking in their own languages, and they were like, wow, this is amazing. This is true. I must believe it. I mean, and then 3,000 refugees become Christians. I mean, I wish that would happen all the time, but it doesn't. It's not normative. As Bat Suparno tells us last week, that was a grand opening of the church. It's not normative. Uh, it doesn't happen regularly. I, I'm not saying God doesn't answer our prayers in a miraculous way. God can't do that to attract people to the gospel. But we, we cannot depend on the fire of tongues to come down and share the gospel. And even many church fathers like Chrysostom and Augustine testify that they have never seen these special appearance of the Holy Spirit in their lifetime. But that does not mean that they couldn't spread the gospel. They faithfully continue to do the work of the gospel to fulfill the Great Commission through the power of the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through transformed lives, and through the faithful proclamation of the church, of the, of the gospel. And so if they can do it, that means we can also do it. We can do it. So examine yourself. Are you making evangelism a priority in your life? Because if you're not, God wants you to change and make this a priority in your life. And also examine yourself. Is your life being continuously transformed by the Holy Spirit to attract others to the gospel? If you're not, God wants you to grow and be a powerful instrument in his hand to save others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing gospel. We thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to transform us and to preach the gospel faithfully. May we continually preach death, resurrection, exaltation of Christ and receiving that forgiveness through repentance and faith. Father, may you uh, protect Jaisia from false gospels, protect us from sin, grow us, transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his word, that we may become powerful instruments in your hand to honor and glorify you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.